Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can create products that your customers love. Now, today we're talking about how to create and use customer use cases to guide product design. Our guest is Dr. Lilac Mahler. She's the VP of Product Management at Kymetic Corporation, and she oversees product strategy, definition, and launch activities for Kymetic's mobile satellite communications product line, which is making mobile broadband connectivity around the world ubiquitous. Lilac has over 20 years of product development experience in telecommunications, consumer electronics, medical devices, as well as she's led cradle-to-grave product development efforts across places, especially for Kymetic now, She also holds 19 U.S. patents. As a reminder, listeners, we do take detailed written notes for you. Everything that we talk about is written up, and we also create a one-page action guide to make it easier for you to put into action some of the key information that Lilac is going to be sharing with us. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 461. This podcast is sponsored by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM Experience. This helps product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing to product really on the same page with each other, working in alignment to reach those North Star objectives and creating better performance as a team in the process. It works best for new teams or teams are facing a challenge, teams that really want to meld better together and improve their performance. If you're facing a big challenge, look into this. It really help what you're doing. What we do is we meet virtually for nine sessions, typically once a week, 75 minutes each week. And we learn these seven essential product management knowledge areas. And in the process, we're building trust and improving your collaboration also. If you want to see if this might work for your team, check it out at productmasterynow.com slash RPM. Bilak, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chad. Really glad to be here. I am delighted for you to be here. Frankly, the reason I do this podcast in the first place has been going now for more than eight years. There's the external that I love bringing information to the product management and innovation community. There's the internal reason that I love talking to interesting, fascinating people that have really good experience for us. And I'm delighted that you are joining us. I just want to get the background. I'm curious about all this interest in technology and engineering. You've been in spacecraft systems, fiber optic networks, medical devices, now communication, doing cellular networks and satellite connectivity. Where does this interest in technology and engineering come from? Honestly, Chad, from birth, my dad was an engineer and I was always good in math and science in school. It was really inevitable that I was going to be an engineer. And honestly, I didn't even want to be anything but an engineer. My dream job when I I was a kid was to work for NASA and, and I got to do that. I worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory which was really, really exciting. And so I I, honestly, I have uh, always been passionate about technology and using technology in different ways. So my career has taken uh, lots of turns through various industries, but really it all comes down to uh, a systems engineering approach and integrated technical approach Mm -hmm. to solving problems, whatever they may be. They might be market problems, they might be technical problems, uh, it's just how we solve problems. And I've always been uh, fascinated by that. Yep. I'm curious if you could just take us inside your house a little bit. In my house, I have two kids. My son just started engineering school as a freshman. My daughter is a senior in physics. And we have the maker room. And in the maker room is a 3D printer. There's a, a couple soldering irons. There's a stack of stuff for assembling uh, drones and model airplanes and things, right? We've done all kinds of, of creative things in this room. And that may have contributed a little bit, right, to their their interest in STEM sort of things. What was it like for you? 
Yeah. But back in the day, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, there were no maker rooms, right? That concept didn't quite exist. But now that I think about it, my house was like that because my dad had a lot of hardware sitting around. My dad did a lot of early work in computers before that was a thing. So when he got his degree, it was in either electrical engineering or physics because the degree of computer science didn't exist back then. So in our house, there were printed circuit boards there were soldering irons, there was a printer paper, even uh, we're past the day of punch cards. But I remember some early punch cards and then transitioning to uh, printer paper. You remember that big pieces of paper that had green and white stripes with holes on the side? And so my house was full of those. And my dad used to write assembly language, I think, back in the day. And so technology was always around. He was always engaged in our homework, helping us. And his mode of thinking was always not to do math and science for the sake of math and science, but to do that in order to solve a problem and relate it to the real world. So that's the environment I grew up in. My brother was two years younger. Uh, We were in the same environment and there was never a distinction about what my brother could do versus what I could do. It was just, this is just what we did. Uh And for me, it was obvious I was going to go to engineering. Uh, My passion was aerospace. So I have a, a bachelor's and master's in aerospace systems engineering. And that really set the stage to how I was thinking about problems in whatever industry I ended up in. And and I've touched uh, several in my career. Yeah, it's a great synthesis, right, of those experiences as a kid, just getting exposed to all the technology, and then your education, and certainly your your professional experience. I really appreciate that system engineering perspective, because I I think it's just missing in organizations that a, a lot of times in organizations, we are looking at optimizing functions. And in the process, we lower the overall performance of the entire organization and having that systems perspective is so important. I did ask about the background a little bit just because I like reminding listeners. So so listeners, thank you so much for listening. Our influence, a lot of us do appreciate STEM sort of topics and our influence on our kids and our friends too. I think I ended up in engineering largely because of two neighbors. One was one taught me how to solder and, and helped me build a Radio Shack a metal detector. And another one showed me a Burl's computer integrated circuit board and just got me thinking about that. And so we have a good influence. So just as a reminder that we can influence those around us. Okay, we're here to talk also about customer use cases and how you've put them into use. Let's first just describe what a use case is, because I think it probably means different things to different people. For sure, for sure. For me, a a use case is how customers use your product or service to derive value of some kind, okay? And so it's that value that makes the customer purchase the product, use the product, maintain and sustain the product, and and frankly, recommend that product uh, to their friends. So it's really the how the customer uses the product that then drives requirements that we write, we as product managers write for engineers to develop the product. And and it's got a couple of challenges, if you will. The, The first challenge is that everybody thinks it's easy, right? What's the, obviously, you're designing a SATCOM system for first responders. How hard can it be to define that use case? It's a lot more. There's a lot of nuance, which brings us to the other problem is that not all users are the same. So creating a common use case across a market segment or a market sub-segment is a lot harder than one thinks. And remember, the engineers can't design to every possible use case. In fact, it creates a, a level of complexity that, that we are trying to avoid, right? So it's the simplicity 
that we're looking for, which is then derived from a very clear use case defined by product management. So you let us into an example there that might be good for us to further develop as we think about this a bit. Uh, yeah. And I, I had the great pleasure of training product managers at Motorola once. And so I got example, the first responder and the, the communication devices. Uh, I can appreciate that. But we should probably get into a little bit of the details about how do we go about creating a use case, figuring out what those needs are, maybe understanding the kind of the fringe uses that don't need to be in our product, but also sometimes those fringe uses come up as market segments, like, oh, here's a whole other segment of customers, right? That's right. So whether you want to pick that example or another one might help us think through this a little bit. But can, can I take us through the steps that you use in creating a use case? Absolutely. So it starts from the business plan, right? So the target market vertical that you think the product fits the best. You narrow down the scope of things to the type of customers that, that you're going after. Then you have to go and you have to learn those customers. And it's really interesting because we have a habit of thinking we know the answer or going to our friends that tend to be in the same geography as we are and tend to have the same socioeconomic standard that we have. And we really, for use cases, want to broaden that up. So the way that I think of use cases or derive use cases is in three ways that that I pursue in parallel. The first one is I do internet research. And these days, YouTube videos of people videotaping how they do certain things. Right. So one thing that I've learned in my career very early on is that what people say and what people think is different and what they think and what they do is different yet. So what you really need to do is you need to observe people. So YouTube is a great forum for that. So do go do internet research. Then I go and I talk to customers. I interview customers. I go out and and go out with customers in the field to see what solutions they're using today, what problems they're facing as they're using, say, our current product. And it, it is different if you're trying to develop a product that is a mature has a mature market, or a product that you're trying to create a market, or perhaps a second generation for a product that you've already put in the marketplace. We all talk about MVPs. So we put an MVP out in the marketplace, we learned a lot, and then we refined the product. Go out and see how your MVP product is being used or how a prototype is used. Then that's a source for use cases. The third uh, way that I have used extensively through my career is through something I called uh, customer surrogates. It's right. always interesting to me how within an organization, you have people that touch customers on a regular basis, and they know the customers often better than the customers know themselves. So when I joined Kymeta five and a half years ago, we had just launched our first generation product. It was called the U7, and it was a technological marvel. It was an incredible product, incredible technology, and we launched it and sold it in the marketplace and started getting feedback. And one of the things, first things that I did in assuming the role of product management, the head of product management, is I pulled into a conference room all of our customer-facing teams, all of these folks that I call customer surrogates. And I brought food because you have to do that. And then we went into a session of tell us what customers say. What do you see? If you had a magic wand, what would you change? And we actually did it via sticky notes. And so I had everybody put on on 10 things that they would do. And then we started bucketizing them and we started talking about them. And, and I still have those sticky notes 
right behind me. And those are the sticky notes that we use to define our current product, the Chimeta U8, which is an incredible mm-hmm. product, has been out in the marketplace for a few years, have sold throughout the world. And I can really trace uh, the, the origins of that product to that session that we had with the customer, in-house customer-facing teams, where I could ask them tough questions sometimes that, that I cannot really ask customers. Within all of, of those resources, I triangulated along with my team, and we came up with three clear use cases that were used to define the requirements that were writ- was written for engineering to define the U8 product that we sell today. And the U8 is actually more of a, a product line rather than a product. So it's not one product meets all. There are several product variants that go after different use target use cases. All comes back out of defining clear use case for each product variant. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. So the, the context of the use case here is very much focused around the customer, kind of the, the problem that they're wanting to solve, what they need to accomplish to achieve mm-hmm. what they're struggling with, and how they might go about using a solution, right, in that. And you made a point that th- this can look a little bit different between a new product that would be new to customers that's outside that's right. of maybe their current experience um, versus a product that maybe is in the marketplace, a competitor has it, we're wanting to compete with, or we're just wanting to make the next generation of our product for them. Any thoughts on how those two differ a little bit in terms of getting information about the customer? Yeah, absolutely. I Throughout my career, I've worked on different life cycles of the product. And, and one of the hardest use cases to define, and, and one would think it's the easiest, but it's actually the hardest, is when you're trying to invent a brand new category and your competition is non-use. So you're mm-hmm. asking a consumer to change how they do something towards using a a device or a solution that they didn't even realize they needed before. And that is the toughest thing to go in and generate uh, a very clear use case. In that case, rapid prototyping, even non-functional mock-ups, or in the case of software storyboards, where you can create storyboards and put that in front of customer or customer surrogates without any um, supportive information. What would you do here? What, how would you use this? What is your take on that? How do you feel about this? If you had a magic wand, what would you do? And then you compile all of that information. You, you watch the body language. So I'm not a fan of surveys. Surveys, people click and they move on. You have to watch the body language. You have yeah. to watch the emotional response people have 
to your product. That is a completely different use case definition than a more mature market where you're coming in and you're saying, oh, I know, sir, you're using this or ma'am, here's a better solution. Here's a better solution. And let's talk about how this improves your life and gets you more value out of the product and service that you use. So it's how you uh, approach uh, the question. And I found out that early in my career, the toughest thing to do uh, is ask the right question. So what problem are you trying to solve in defining the use case? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it does take some experience to get the right questions. I'm sure I've made many mistakes in asking poor questions. And you also stressed along with that, the importance of observation. Yeah. As you said earlier, what people say is not always what people do. And getting to see how they actually interact with things. And in the case of the new category, putting something in their hands, like a a mock-up or a prototype and getting reactions, that can tell a lot more to the story than just what we might be talking about. Yeah. And in fact, if I may add, I I did a stint working for a very large consumer goods company. And there I learned something that blew my mind. As an engineer, I I discover things sometimes where I go, whoa, I had no idea. I learned that people, what they say is not what they think. What they think is not what they feel. And purchasing decisions are made on emotions. So getting to that emotional response is, is key in defining that use case that you're going after. Right. Yeah. It's that functional need that we're actually trying to solve the problem. There's those emotional needs too. Like we, exactly. we want to feel good about this decision and not foolish in some way. So exactly. I contributed to a book several years ago, but one of the little examples we found was, I forget the company, but like a John Deere type tractor company. And they were over in Germany figuring out how to make their tractor better. And they had these, they set up a focus group, right? And then they interviewed some of the people out of that focus group. And one guy kept saying, the tractor's perfect, right? Everyone else had some suggestions. And one guy said, the tractor's perfect. Don't change anything. I love my tractor. It's perfect. And they went to visit to observe his tractor. And I think they counted 19 modifications he had made to the tractor to make his tractor perfect. It's a very different story when we have the opportunity to observe and we get new information. Yes, Okay, this is really good. About now that we have the a use case, we're, we're in the process of, of getting that. It may be something that evolves, right? As our understanding, as we work with the customer more, we start putting some more prototypes and possible solutions in front of them. But how is that? How do you see that really tying in with the the product team, helping us drive towards a vision, having a shared understanding of what it is we're trying to get done together? Uh, maybe the decision making that comes up along the way. How does this tool help us? Yeah. So to me, uh, use cases is like a a magnifying glass that brings the product vision into focus. So product vision is high level goals matched with market expectations and market opportunity. The use case takes that vision, refines it, brings it into focus to a point where we can write clear requirements for the the team that's executing the development. So it's really a focus mechanism from a vision to requirements. And and it's an iterative process because it may actually uh, revise the vision. It may iterate on the vision and and change how the company behaves around uh, the overall strategy, depending on what we find out in, in investigating the use cases. Yeah, exactly. It's not that the use case is changing direction. It's what we learned from the customer that we're reflecting in the use case. It's like, exactly. Because sometimes we get down the path on projects and we find that the customer really has a different need than where our solution isn't going to be real aligned. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that doesn't get incorporated all the time. So there, there's momentum that can build up on some projects. And that's part might be the culture of the organization. And recognizing that we learned something really important that's different than we were expecting, and then revising our use case and our how that impacts the vision is pretty important. I'm sure you've ran into this uh, places along the way. Absolutely. And if I may add to that, the flip mm-hmm. side of that is that sometimes when you do really high tech, the, the, the development team isn't able to meet all of the requirements. So now you're into a trade-off discussion. And that tool of use case really helps guide those trade-off iterations that product management has with the design team. So the, the, that use case sitting there in the middle iterates with the business team on the product vision, but it also iterates with the technical team on uh, technical trade-off decisions that happen during development. Okay, that, that, that's very helpful. So certainly something that makes the vision a little bit more tangible for us. And yep. you said it can lead into requirements and help with some decision-making that's helpful for us. What's the form that you see a use case being used by a team? Is this a written document? Do you have a, a Canvas you know, version of a summary? How do you use this as a tool to communicate with the team? Yeah, so I use it in a number of different ways. And really, a lot of it depends on the team itself. So for us here at Kaimeta, we actually have written use cases. So we write for each of our use cases or primary use cases, I should say, we have a very clearly defined description for the engineering team. We also supplement those with white papers. Many of those you can find on our website that that define the needs of that customer segment. Slightly different language, right? How we write in marketing and in white papers is different than how we describe the use case to a technical team. But we very much write it down. I've had prior jobs where it it actually evolved into actual personas with pictures of people that we had on the wall in scrum rooms and in development team forums, if you will. At Chimera, we don't do that but we do interact with quite a bit of customers. We focus on the primary use case itself and we use that tagline and then we go into the details depending on a, on a case-by-case basis. Right. right. Yeah, personas is a whole nother... There's a whole nother thing, yeah. Yeah, the, my quick take is if they're motivating for the team, they're worth considering. I really want to understand the job, the need of the customer. How can we communicate that? Yeah, and- the issue that I have with personas is... We product management design for a market. We don't design for a customer. So if I have a picture of Steve on the wall, Steve needs to represent a market segment. He needs to represent Steve, Bob, Bill, and Mary, as opposed to one particular individual. And what I find is that engineers in particular tend to interact with a subset of customers and then they envision that particular right. customer and they design for that customer. That customer isn't necessarily representing the market as a whole. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'd rather focus on people with the problem. Those people may look very different, but they all have the same problem. Right? That's right. So, okay. But, okay. So this is, is written. Uh, on the written version of this, do you have a structure you'd like to use for that? Are you, are you using uh, stories now, yeah. user stories? or we, we tend to use short narratives. So mm-hmm. it needs to, to to be a paragraph that tells a story, but it can't be a novel because you lose the audience. So it needs to be maybe a couple of paragraphs of, of it is for us at Kaimeta. It's a couple of paragraphs of what the use case is. And from that, we tie into specific product requirements yep. that then evolve into systems requirements and, and more technical requirements past that. 
Yeah. Okay. This is really a need between the customer requirement in some sense and the engineering requirement so that the development team knows what actually to put together. As we've talked, I've got a few benefits along the way. We talked about useful for making trade-off decisions, helpful for us moving towards requirements and ultimately maybe specifications. Overall, understanding the customer, because we're doing that as we write these things up. Any other benefits that come to mind you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. I find that, that use cases provide focus for the whole organization. So it really, it forces us not to have 20 use cases. No one can action on that at one time. So it really forces the organization to focus on the right use cases. And it it also forces us to get data to validate internal assumptions. So it does, it forces the management and the organization to focus on the right things with data that is gathered through the process of pulling use cases together. In addition, in pulling that data, what it does is it forces the team, now it's back to product management, to do a normalization exercise. It's to take pieces of data that may not all be consistent, but create a unified use case or use cases that then brings the organization to to focus. It's really a tool that we use internally to ensure that that we're focused on the right customer, the right segment, and then in turn use that tool to write requirements for engineering. One other piece I do want to add, it's quite complementary to UI UX activities. It's not the same, but it's very complementary. For example, uh, at Kaimeta, when we developed the U8, we had some clear use cases at the beginning. And then what we did at the very early stages when we developed, when we launched the very first variant, we brought in an independent third party to do a usability audit. Why? You want an independent, fresh set of eyes. Even us in product are too close to our baby, right? So you bring right. in somebody from the outside to audit the usability the relative to the use case that has been defined. And then they provide us report, which we then put into sustaining engineering to improve the product, or we put it into the next generation of the product. And, and as you look at the evolution of the U8, very much uh, we've incorporated the results of that UI UX audit that was audited relative to the use case. That's very helpful. It makes me think back to the three ways that you look at getting a, a use case and doing that in parallel. Yeah. And, and you gave the example of the customer surrogates. And I've done this as well. And it sounded like you had a team there of people that had customer contact and understood the, the customer well and provided really good insights. And I think that can work really well. And at the same time, if it wasn't for the previous item you talked about, which is interactions with customers, we can go down the wrong path because sometimes what we think we know isn't actually what is reality, right? And I don't want to leave people with the impression uh, in case they, they heard some of this, maybe to focus on just that kind of area. In that example you brought up, how did you validate some of that information that you were gaining from your surrogates with customers or, or what would you think about doing? Talking to customers, working with customers, I also tend to validate it with salespeople. And so different people in the organization have different views of the customer, right? Salespeople are more interested in what closes their deals in the short term. Support people are interested in. in so, so even within the organization, people look at 
Same customer. I can pick a customer. Multiple functions look at that customer differently. We we also, as organizations, have a way of reacting to squeaky wheel customers a lot more than others. So we need to normalize that. So we we force that to happen as we look across the board. So I validate that by talking to customers, talking to different different functions within the organization, and then asking customers and, and, and asking newbies. Sometimes I try and that third party that, that wasn't from the industry, get me out of my box, get me right. out of my comfort zone. What am I missing here? Yeah, think about it completely differently. Yep. Really good information. Love the the tools that you use for putting together the use case, getting that information about the customer in different ways, how that provides focus and vision for us, leads us towards requirements, many of the benefits of using use cases. As listeners know, we also like innovation quotes around here. And I asked (laughs) you to think about one you wanted to share and also describe what that means to you. So what do you have for us? I have a quote from Jeffrey Moore, who wrote Cross. Crossing the Chasm, a very famous book, which I read, I want to say, well over a decade ago. I picked it up last week and reread it with the product management perspective. And it really blew my mind. It blew my mind in how current it still is, a book that's relatively old. And there was one quote in there that really resonated with me. And that is, you need to understand that informed intuition rather than analytical reason is the most trustworthy decision-making tool to use. And the reason that resonated with me is we're talking about use cases, we're talking about collecting data from multiple sources and triangulating it. And that phrase, informed intuition, really hit the mark on what product management does. If we had all the data and all we had to do was crunch numbers and an answer would come out the other end, then you wouldn't need product management (laughs) to define use cases, target markets, and and write requirements. It's that that informed intuition that is is validated via multiple different paths that really drive the right uh, use cases out there. Yeah, that's very good. There's some synthesis integration that goes on through our experience and knowledge. I, I always rebuff a little bit when I hear people say we're a data-driven organization. And I've seen some actual examples of huge waste of resources and mistakes made because they're chasing after the data. In some sense, this informed intuition kind of flies in the face of where modern product management is going because it's very data-driven. And I find that refreshing. And I appreciate that you brought this to, for us to think about. And if I may add, some of us hmm. are working on disruptive technologies that yeah. might want to, uh, might aim at creating new markets, then then there's no data. There's Mm -hmm. no data one can use. You can leverage adjacent data out there, but you're really grasping at straws. At some point, it's that informed intuition that drives the decisions. Yep. Very good. I like that quote. Thanks for bringing that to us. And Jeffrey Moore and team made a great book as well. So crossing the chasm. How can people find out more about the work you're doing about MyTech? Anything you want to share about what what you're up to? Yeah, two two places. The first one is our website. So kymetacorp.com has a wealth of resources, including some white papers that really talk to use cases that, that we're going after. There's some really great stuff in there if you want to learn more about Kymeta and how we look at use cases. And then the other source as far as me and my background is LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn okay. and there's some articles tied in there and other resources as well. So Kymeta Corp is the company, LinkedIn, and I will make sure both links are in the show notes. I'm curious if, if we could just talk for a minute. We are wrapping up here. 
growing up in the 80s, 90s with lots of other people from that time, we expected we would have a sat phone in our pocket. And there's been different attempts and there's economic challenges and other things. Just where are we going right now? What's the state of the near future when it comes to, as your company is all about, ubiquitous communications? Yeah, we're getting a heck of a lot closer than than I would have imagined a decade ago. The, there are some challenges in the industry that are I'm watching them o- get overcome on the heels of the cellular industry. So lots of standards, lots of infrastructure that's being put in place. If you think about it, the very first cellular phone call was made in the 70s, and today it's ubiquitous. Uh, satellite communication has been around for some very specific use cases. We're now expanding the use cases little by little. And, and I, I think that in another five to 10 years, we're all going to be connected to satellite in one way or another. So mm-hmm. there will be some communication through smartphones. There's lots of companies that are working on that. Apple announced, Samsung announced capabilities in, in talking to smartphones. And then there are enterprise solutions. So if you think about it, we now expect Wi-Fi everywhere and cellular isn't everywhere. So if you get on a train or a bus and you drive out, you lose connectivity. But if I'm on a train, on a bus or in my car, I still expect to have a Wi-Fi bubble. And that can be enabled by satellite communication. So it's not going to be one solution. It's going to be a number of solutions that bring that ubiquitous connectivity that ties back to the smartphone in our pockets. Fantastic. It seems to be getting better. Yeah. All the time. In the 90s, I was on a few projects where I occasionally carried with me a suitcase size sat phone. (laughs) Literally, and you opened up the suitcase, you brought out the little satellite antenna type dish and made the, I don't remember how many dollars that cost per minute. We have come a very long ways from that and uh, it's getting better all the time. So really interested to see what Kymetta does and appreciate all your knowledge that you shared with us on using use cases and how that can help us drive requirements and what we do for our customers. Thanks for being with us, Lyak. Thanks, Chad. And listeners, as a reminder, you will find the detailed written notes of what we talked about and that one-page action guide at productmasterynow.com slash 461. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.